This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, I had Ben Eltham join me from New Matilda to talk about federal politics and the federal budget. Then I had author and researcher Nick McClellan join me to talk about his latest book, Grappling with the Bomb, Britain's Pacific H-Bomb Tests. And then finally, I had writer and social philosopher Anne Mann join me to talk about her piece in the monthly called Gross Domestic Hoax, How the Australian Economy Rests on Women's Unpaid Work. Yes, you are tuned to 3 Triple R FM 102.7 in Melbourne. And as I said... I now have with me in the studio Ben Altham, who is the National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda, and he joins me in the studio. Hi, Ben. Morning, Amy. How are you? Morning. I'm good. We certainly have um, reached, <coughs> excuse me, autumn weather, perhaps yeah. winter. Oh, yeah, it's reasonably chilly. Hey, uh, where are our beers? I want to know, mm. where, where, where are the breakfast beers in this studio? <laughs> hint, hint, breakfasters yeah. who are enjoying a nice craft beer session um, with the guests they <laughs> yeah. had at the end of the show. We can see them through the glass just uh, cracking on and having a few beers over there. It's a good way to start a Tuesday morning, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> good well, for some. Yeah, hint, hint. But um, whilst we wait for our delivery of craft beer from Studio One, <laughs> yeah. uh, let's get started on federal politics and see how we go. Ben, the budget was delivered last Tuesday. Yes, it was. Yes, yes. Uh, Scott Morrison gave the speech uh, and um, the budget papers came down and um, I didn't go to Canberra this year, but I sort of stayed up late reading through the papers and having a look at it all. And well, actually a really interesting budget, I think, mainly for what it does to inequality, which is really bad things. It is really bad. Yeah. Yeah, in that sense. It certainly makes our tax system far less progressive and particularly in income tax, which is the key focus here. Yeah, so the main measure of the budget is Morrison's handout to... Well, it it begins as a handout to low and middle income earners, but baked into the budget over the next seven years is a massive tax cut to rich people. Uh, something like $140 billion over 10 years, the majority of which will go to the wealthiest in our society. And it makes the tax system much flatter, as you mentioned in the introduction, and that makes Australian society much more unequal. So it's a radical upwards redistribution, really. And I think that that's deeply concerning. It is deeply concerning because, I mean, let's go through each of these proposals because the first one is that that you get this handout at a certain point in the year and everyone will get a different figure, obviously, depending on how much they're earning. Um, But then there's a proposal that is a seven-year plan to flatten and reduce the income brackets, the tax income brackets that currently exist. So we're going to get rid of one whole bracket um, and so that you know, the vast proportion, over 90% of people will be in this one bracket of 32.5% income tax being taken from their uh, their income. Obviously, it all is a sliding scale, but that's a, a massive flattening. So, there's basically really just three tax brackets. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, people earning $40,000 will be paying the same rate of tax as people earning $200,000. And I think you can see why that's going to be bad for inequality. Because obviously, if you're earning $200,000 a year, then you're pretty well off. You're doing okay. 
and you're more likely to be able to pay that level of tax than the low to middle income worker on 40 grand a year. So um, what we call that is a flat tax system. And um, the reason is the rate is, is flat. It's the same across the spectrum. And that's really bad for inequality. The reason is because the rich get richer. It's pretty pretty simple, really. It's not that hard to understand. And of course, we already have a society that's quite unequal. And one of the ways you can improve inequality is to raise taxes at the top end. This penalises the very wealthy in our society, but it also channels that tax back to the government, which can spend it on roads, schools, hospitals, pensions, all the things that make our society a better place to live in. Mm, Exactly. And let's kind of put this in real terms for people um, based on the budget papers. Um, First of all, they're removing the 37% tax bracket, which currently uh, kicks in at $87,000 when your income is up to 87, like over $87,000 up to $180,000. So that's a pretty big bracket that they've just uh, cut. But then if you look at um, this shift and what the average rate of tax paid will be, those people on $70,000 will see a reduce a reduction of 0.7 percentage points but those earning $180,000 see a drop of 2.6 percentage points and those on 200,000 see a average rate fall of 3.6 so as you see the more you earn the less tax you're paying yeah that's pretty much it um, and it's a very much a budget that rewards the liberal base uh, and particularly rich people and, um, and that's what it's all designed to do, really. Um, I, I think it's outrageous. I think it's bad for Australia. Um, but uh, there's no doubt, you know, if you crunch the data, and we've got some pretty good data crunching now from various academics and think tanks, it's pretty clear what this is. You know, this is uh, taking money out of the economy and giving it back to the wealthy. Um, so, you know, I mean, that's what it is. It is. And... Ben, I mean, it's being sold as this budget for low and middle income earners. They're getting rid of the low income tax offset and creating a low and middle income earners tax offset. Um, this is the, the way they're selling it is, you know, let's just kind of avoid the fact that deep down and into the future when we get to this seven year plan and they want to get this whole tax reform package through in one go, uh, preferably before July. They want the whole seven-year plan through, which is already going to be an issue because Labor has said it will only support uh, the tax handout, so to speak, in the first part of this package. Uh, But they're not interested in the seven-year plan necessarily because they want costings. They want to know how much exactly this seven-year plan is going to cost. And ironically, uh, Scott Morrison said that those figures would be too unreliable to release. Yeah, that's right. The government hasn't released costings for its flat tax plan. Um, All we've got is the the numbers in the budget that go out to four years. Conveniently, uh, they don't really um, take into account like the, the very... Um, the very big tax changes that are in the pipeline should the government get this through the Senate. And let's be a little bit realistic here. I think this is dead in the water already. I don't think it's going to happen. It's two elections away. The impact on the budget alone is massive. Mm. I mean, we're talking probably $21, $24 billion a year. These tax cuts will be worth by 2023, 2024. That's enormous. I mean, that is nearly the entire defence budget. 
That's more than the government spends on schools or universities, uh, you know, much more than it spends on welfare in, in the case of something like New Start. So the hit to the budget is enormous. You know, I, I just don't think that it's really very plausible. Um, you know, it, it's really about signalling to the to the coalition base that this is a government that will look after the interests of wealthy Australians. And I think that shows you just how much trouble the government is in politically because it feels the need to shore up its base mm. rather than fight the election on where it needs to be fought, which is in middle Australia. Middle Australia does get a little bit out of the budget. They get about $530 a year of their paying tax. Um, I don't think ordinary Australians will necessarily be upset about that. I mean, I'm, I mean, everyone was going to welcome a, a little bit of a tax cut, but I don't think it's going to be a big fillip for the government and I don't think it's going to help their electoral fortunes. No, and I think uh, it's also a signal that perhaps there are future cuts to government services and other programs because the revenue will be much reduced. Yes, very much so, Amy. I think that's an excellent point. This is exactly the program here. You cut taxes, you cut taxes radically. We've seen it in the United States a lot. You cut taxes a lot and then all of a sudden to make the budget balance, you've got to, what are you going to do? You've got to cut government services, you've got to cut spending. So, um, you know, the government has made a decision here, a very calculated decision that rather than bank this, the extra tax revenue that's flowing in at the moment because the economy is healthy, um, and to use that money to pay back the debt. Remember, we had a budget emergency a few years ago. We had a debt and deficit disaster. That's all disappeared now. Mm-hmm. Uh, no mention of that in Scott Morrison's speech. And really no long-term effort to pay back the debt either, uh, which is ballooned under this government much more than it had under Labor. I mean, this budget really puts the lie to the idea that the coalition is a better fiscal manager than Labor. I think that's, you know, if you look at the figures, that's blown out of the water. Of course, people always believe the coalition's a better economic manager because of, I guess, just, you know, decades of of ingrained belief. But the numbers say otherwise. I mean, I think this is a very poor budget in terms of economic management. Mm. Well, we've seen a lot of money come in, $35 billion, in fact, of of cash that we're now spending on income tax cuts, among other things. Yeah, that's right. I mean, then that money could have gone to things like paying back the debt. Or it could have gone to things like investing in productive infrastructure, investing in education, which gets some of the best returns you can invest as a government because more educated people are more productive and they earn more over the life of their career. Uh, All sorts of things that the government could have done and hasn't done. So there's been a huge missed opportunity, I think, from this budget to a really big case in point, housing. Nothing in the budget on housing. We have an affordability crisis in this country. The government's doing basically zero on housing. It's just, you know, hoping that the market will fix itself. You know, clearly the market's not going to fix housing affordability in Sydney and Melbourne. So that's just one example, you know, very little on universities. The university funding cuts are still baked in there. Um, You know, very little on infrastructure. All of the infrastructure announcements in the budget were actually old money. They weren't new money. So they were all just infrastructure spending that had been announced in previous budgets. So, you know, a, a lot of smoke and mirrors in this budget um, and But the, the take-home message for me is massive, massive worsening of inequality. Exactly. And Ben, um, let's talk about where some of the cuts have been because um, 
The ABC has seen its funding cut by $83.7 million over the next three years. That's a huge proportion of funding. What do you think will be the impact of that? Yeah, nasty cut to the ABC. I mean, you have to put it in context. The ABC's budget is about a billion dollars a year. So, you know, okay, it's, it's not... But we have seen cuts over time from quite a while ago. So the ABC has continually been reducing, restructuring their management uh, levels and how they operate and streamlining certain services. Do you think it's going to impact upon actual real content? Yeah, by my calculations, this takes the total budget cuts by the coalition to the ABC uh, over four years to nearly, nearly $400 million. So... That's my back of the envelope calculation of how much money the coalition's cut from the ABC since they t- they came to office. So it really is war against the ABC. And again, you know, this is about the coalition base, uh, those rusted on right wing conservatives who hate the ABC, think they're a, a nest of lefties. Um, and it is going to hurt the ABC. There's no doubt about it. Gavin Morris, the news director of the ABC, gave a speech last week where he said, you know, there's no more fat to cut. We've got to start cutting into muscle from now on. We're going to have to sack journalists. In fact, they already have sacked journalists recently. There's going to be more job losses at the ABC inevitably. I think the quality of the ABC's news coverage and many other things the ABC does, remember, they do drama, they do local coverage, they are an emergency broadcaster. All of that stuff's going to have to start to decline now. Yep. And if we put that into perspective, and this has been uh, brought up and it is a really quite stark contrast, that uh, the government has decided to allocate $48.7 million over four years to commemorate the 250th anniversary of Captain Cook's voyages to the South Pacific and Australia. Oh, Captain James Cook. Yes. You know, everybody's (laughs) favourite white man. Exactly. Um, the, the one historical figure you learn about in primary school. Yes. Hopefully things have changed since I was in primary school. Well, look, you know, um, you know a man of science and culture uh, travelled the world to uh, observe, uh, you know, uh, some astronomical observations and then travelled on to, in inverted commas, discover Australia in 1770. Look, you know, I mean, this is again part of the uh, endless culture war that the coalition likes to play. Um, this is just, you know, naked pork barrelling really for Scott Morrison's electorate. Uh, ironically, yes, he gets a statue. Yes, he gets a statue in his electorate. And, um, you know, there'll be, there'll be some money to splash around for some, you know, ribbon cutting and so on and so forth. I mean, it's not a lot of money in the scheme of things, but it does kind of show you, I think, the government's priorities. And, um, you know, I would have thought in a government that's this unpopular, this close to the election, they would have you know, rather more pressing priorities than, than trying to, you know, sign off on sort of legacy culture war projects like a Cook Memorial. <laughs> it is really quite funny. I agree. But uh, it does put some things into perspective because um, it is more funding is being spent on that than mental health. Yeah, I mean, but every budget is important because it shows you the government's priorities and that's a really good example, you know, for the government... Um, what their priorities are. And, you know, I don't think this government is particularly interested in mental health. It's not particularly interested in the less fortunate people in our society in general. So uh, there's very little funding in the in the budget for preventative health in general. You know, the government made much of their aged care announcements on the budget night. Um, but if you look into the detail of those aged care announcements, they're actually tiny. 
Um, I think there was uh, something like 14,000 aged care places. Home care packages. Home yeah. care packages, yeah, across four years. Now, there's a 100,000-person waiting list for those packages, so this is just a drop in the ocean. It's barely going to touch the surface of it. You know, so um, if we look at the, the scale of need in many of our human services, social services in this country, and if we look at the scale of the government investment, there's a massive mismatch. And the government's made a decision not to address those problems, but instead to hand money back, particularly to rich people. Mm, exactly. And these budgets have a lot of forecasting and assumptions baked into them about how the economy is going to be travelling over the next four years in across the forward estimates. And one of the assumptions the coalition has made is that wages growth is somehow going to rise to 3.25% by 2019, 2020. And uh, it was interesting, but not surprising that Elizabeth Prowse, the chairman of the Australian Institute for Company Directors said that that was a rather heroic forecast and that she had no idea how they were going to get to that. Yeah, it is hard to see how wages will be growing at that kind of clip. Um, They've been bumping along the bottom for a long time now. Um, You know, employment has been growing strongly and that's really what's got the budget out of of trouble. Um, We added 300,000 full-time jobs in the last financial year. So, you know, full credit in that respect, the economy is improving. But we're clearly not at a stage where the labour market is tight yet. And it's only when it's too hard for employers to hire workers at their current wages that they'll start to give workers a raise. I mean, that's just basic economics. Um, At the moment, you know, we can see that um, even though we're adding jobs, wages aren't growing, which tells us that there's still plenty of slack in the labour market. Exactly. And it it does mean that if you assume that wages will grow and you'll get to 3.25%, that also perhaps your revenue forecasts may be off. And, uh, and that's always a risk in terms of the budget. There are many assumptions about where we're going to save money. We'll pick up money from cracking down on illegal tobacco, for example, and get $3 billion from that. I mean, these are major assumptions that we have. Do you think that... Um, Um, these assumptions are perhaps not so realistic? Well, you know, basically I don't know because that's the problem with these budget forecasts. You don't know whether they're going to turn out or not. Um, That's the nature of uncertainty. Um, You know, the bigger uncertainties are things like macroeconomic risk, what might happen in China, you know. uh, The the US recovery is now into its fifth or sixth year. Um, At some point the US Federal Reserve is going to have to start putting interest rates up again. What will happen then? You know, might that torpedo the US economy? You know, it's it's really hard to know. We don't know what's going to happen in the, the, the rest of the world and that will affect Australia. At the moment, the economic news is good and, um, you know, that's great. Uh, but we don't know that that's going to continue, obviously. Yes. And let's talk about the budget reply because I think that is important to show where Labor wants to challenge the government. And certainly they do want to challenge them on tax. They certainly did a bit of a throwdown to Malcolm Turnbull and Scott Morrison saying that they would actually raise them one and do better. They would support the first round uh, of tax cuts or giveaways. But then what else did they propose, Ben? Well, I say this every year, Amy, and I guess I'm going to have to say it again. Budget reply speeches mean very little. Um, They're just not that important in the scheme of things. But it does signal where they're going to challenge the government on their budget and why, what parts may or may not get through. 
Sure. You know, they become basically a political device, a, a talking point, a, a piece of rhetoric. Labor's uh, response to the budget was to double the tax cut to lower middle income, middle income earners. Uh, a maximum re- of $928 a year for middle income earners. That's right. I mean, I think they should have ramped it up to 1000 just to... You know, nice for round a, figure. Yeah, nice round, cool, a thou, you know. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think that will be more attractive to voters should they listen and care, which generally they don't. Um, I, however, I do think that Labor has probably got their messaging better than the coalition because Labor's sort of policy on this is they're not going to commit to the big flattening of the tax system. They're not going to commit to these massive tax cuts to rich people. And instead, no. they're going to direct the tax cuts to middle Australia. And I think that is a better political message. Yeah, it's for everyone who earns less than $125,000 a year is where they're going to focus their attention. It's very smart politics because, let's face it, how many people actually know people who earn more than $120,000 a year? I mean, you have to get up into some pretty rarefied air to actually be earning that much. Absolutely. Um, the statistics say that I think um, 120 is something like the... 85th percentile or something like that. I'll have to crunch the data on that carefully. But, you know, um, the majority of Australians earn less than $120,000. Let's just put it like that. So I think Labor's Labor's targeting there is very clever. And they're still maintaining that they will uh, have increased revenue, more revenue to play with. And that's why they can afford these tax cuts is because they are going to make their changes to negative gearing and capital gains tax, as well as to superannuation tax concessions, family trusts, which they recently announced and franking credits. So Labor has a whole suite of plans to reduce areas where there are loopholes, where those who are on high incomes that already are well off are using the system to their own advantage. Do you think this is going to, I guess, get through to voters that there's you know, a substantial difference between um, the tax reform that the Liberals are proposing and the tax reform which Labor did propose at the last election and the kind of new pr- proposals they've got? Yeah, I don't know. That's a really interesting question. Um, you know, we're talking about tax. Tax is pretty boring. It is. It's do not ordinary, sexy. Do ordinary punters care that much about tax? I mean, no one likes to pay tax. Um, so, Negative know, gearing did pick up, though. In the last election, that seemed to be something people did pay attention to because yeah. it had that real-life uh, impact, which was on housing. If Labor can package up this message well and actually communicate it to voters and if voters are listening, then I think they've got a a strong message there because what we can find out from this budget, if you delve into the budget papers, is uh, the bad times are over. You know, the um, the budget emergency is done. Uh, We could have a surplus tomorrow if we're prepared to attack all of those tax concessions and rorts to rich people. Labor, simply by not committing to company tax cuts not committing to big tax cuts for rich people in income tax and tightening up all of those tax breaks around trusts, negative gearing, handing out money to people (laughs) because they happen to have fully frank shares, all that kind of stuff. There's billions and billions of dollars there that Labor has to play with. And it can, if it so chooses, return some of that to middle-income earners and low-income earners in the form of tax breaks or tax cuts. It can also invest that in health and education. So Labor has a strong message, I think. And, you know, Chris Bowen's a pretty clever fellow and I think he's preparing a pretty strong platform for the next election campaign.
He is clever. I have been impressed with um, his performance, particularly under questioning by Lee Sales and such people. Yep, you know um, he's done his homework, and they've got they've got a pretty good economic team. Jim mm. Chalmers, Andrew Lee, there's some smart people in there. Yep, and it, that is an important thing is to have that <laughs> policy now, and uh, and that's something which I guess the coalition has been missing is a really strong uh, policy think base within their elected representatives. I mean, I think the problem for the coalition is that um, you know liberal ideology is hollowed out. You mm. know. Um, it, it is no longer the party for the forgotten people of Menzies. It's increasingly a party that represents a series of sectional interest-based, um, you know, financial planners, real estate agents, um, the corporate class. You know, th- these are fairly narrow groups within society. Um, and so by the coalition returning favours and goodies to those those interest groups, to their base, um, there's less and less ability for them to think in the big picture about what's good for Australia, what's good for the majority of people in Australia. Mm. And it's worth mentioning uh, about the robo-debt program, which will continue, and that's already there, featured as part of the budget. Oh, yes, yes, robo-debt. Certainly not dying off. No, you can't kill it. Despite the controversy. No. <laughs> and, and also looking at New Start, which is once again not increasing, but also uh, that newly arrived migrants will have to wait one more year to receive welfare assistance and refugees who are approved and proven to be refugees will need to wait uh, even longer for New Start now for 26 weeks. Yeah, some really nasty, nasty, nasty attacks there. You know, once again, beating up on the, the least least well off, the the, the most insecure Mm. in our society. And those who don't have a strong public voice necessarily. No, exactly right. You know, there is no public voice for people on Newstart really. The Australian Council of Social Service has been trying very hard in that respect, but um, they haven't been getting a lot of traction. Um, There's been a lot of beating up on welfare recipients by this government an awful lot throughout the four years and it just seems to be getting worse and worse. Um, You know, so there's that, yeah, some very nasty cuts directed at uh, new migrants. Um, and, and once again, you know, the, these things don't save that much money. They're really signalling no. to, to the coalition voters that uh, these, these are the government's priorities, you know. Exactly. And let's just now talk about one of the other developments which has gone maybe a bit under the radar but has picked up in the last couple of weeks is the fact that uh, five people have been um, determined by the High Court to not be valid MPs or politicians anymore, elected representatives, because they were deemed to be dual citizens and not to have taken enough steps to ensure that they were just a citizen of Australia, now we're going to have multiple by-elections on one day. It's going to be an intense period for a lot of voters who thought they had been through all this (laughs) and we're now seeing the pre-selections occur and Liberal women particularly not really being the winner here, uh, except for obviously Georgina Downer, who's been pre-selected for the seat of Mayo uh, as a Liberal candidate. And she'll go up against Rebecca Sharkey, who was a Nick Xenophon team candidate and will now obviously be not. Yeah, look, um, so citizenship goes on and on and on. Um, I, I've, I must admit, I've almost stopped caring 
Um, but it is ridiculous that yeah. we have to come back and pay all this money. Like the AEC now needs to conduct and hold all these by-elections because politicians could not do their homework. I mean, why should people have to deal with this? No, it is the politicians' fault. There's no doubt about that. Um, you know, I think Richard Di Natale's point when Scott Ludlam was first first had to resign way back Ages. last year yeah. sometime, in the mists of time, um, Di Natale's point was right. We need, we need a full audit of mm. every parliamentarian. And if we'd had one of those by yeah. now, we probably could have dealt with this and moved on. But no, it drags on and on and... The latest High Court decision saw uh, ACT Senator Katie Gallagher um, struck down. She had to resign. That triggered the resignation of a string of other MPs who realised they would then now be caught up. Um, so we saw, I think, Susan Lamb in Queensland. Um, there's a bunch of them. Um, yeah, Justine Key, was, is she one of them? I think so. Let um, me just go through the list again. Yep. They're not necessarily as prominent. Yeah. I mean, Caddy Gallagher was the chief minister for the ACT. So, I mean, yeah. she has been, you know, someone signalled to have a good future as a potential well, many you know, of them front will be bench back. minister. I mean, yeah, let's remember that Barnaby Joyce um, was had to resign and then had a by-election and was re-elected. So, you know, some of these guys will mm. be back. Katie uh, won't be, though, because the Senate's a bit different. It just goes to the next one on the list under her. Yeah, sure, but they can always pre-select her for the next Senate election, you know. So, um, you know, I think I think she'll be back in Parliament at some stage. Um, yeah, look, look, yeah. there'll be there'll now be some by-elections. And, yeah. um, it does affect Labor though. Ma- the majority of these people, Justine Key, Susan Lamb, and Josh Wilson, are Labor MPs. Rebecca Sharkey is a crossbench MP, and Katie Gallagher Labor. So, up until now, we've seen a lot of Liberals affected, but this is probably one of the first times where Labor is comprehensively affected. Yeah, it does affect Labor, and it does definitely leaves a bit of egg on Bill Shorten's face because remember he insisted that Labor had excellent vetting and that all. All its candidates were fully vetted, and therefore, that you know, there'd be no labour, labour politicians affected. Well, that's turned out to be wrong. Um, will these guys win their uh, their elections again? That, that's an interesting question. I think Susan Lamb could be in trouble up there in Queensland. Um, that would be a hard by-election for her to win again. Mm. Um, the other guys, I think, will be a bit safer. Um, and yeah. in Mayo, I think Georgina Downer's uh, headed for Parliament. I think she's going to trounce Rebecca Sharkey over there, just on name recognition alone. Of course, Alexander Downer held that seat for, oh, 30 years or something. Yeah. Um, and she's a prominent voice herself. She's in the IPA. You know, she gets on the telly quite a bit. So I think she'll do quite well over there. Yeah, and there's a couple of seats that the Liberals have decided not to even bother contesting, Mm -hmm, particularly mm -hmm. in Western Australia, in the seats of Fremantle (coughs) and Perth, because, of course, we saw a resignation of Tim Hammond, who decided uh, that he needed to spend more time with his family, his young children and his wife, um, instead of being a Member of Parliament. Yeah, um, I think a, a very interesting development that, you know, more power to Tim Hammond for, for making the call to, to actually have a family rather than to have a political career because the two basically are mutually exclusive. If you want to see your family, it's very hard to be a politician. Mm, particularly federally. Yeah, particularly federally and particularly in Western Australia, having to fly to Canberra all the time. Mm. Um, and that's the second prominent Labor politician to quit politics um, remember Kate Ellis, a, a Labor frontbencher, actually quit. Same reason, wanted to spend time with their family. 
So, I mean, you know, we are starting to see talented people drop out of politics because of family reasons. And I think, well, that's a good thing for those people. Absolutely. For those politicians and their families, I think that's the best result. Mm. Whether that's the best result for our democracy, I don't know. No, and perhaps uh, we need to look at Parliament in the way it's done and operated and perhaps start changing things a bit. Well, that's that's a very noble sentiment, Amy, but I don't think that's happening anytime soon. Well, I mean, I have brought this up before that if you think about it, Parliament is a workplace and uh, it really doesn't have that much flexibility in there. We've obviously seen parliamentarians and uh, senators able to breastfeed in parliament, which is, you know, something where we've had to to make those changes and allow, you know, people and enable them to have, you know, cots in their offices and partners travel with them so that they can look after the children while the, um, the person, mother or father, is off doing the work. Sure. I mean, I think, you know, our parliament is a barbaric and quite arcane workplace that, you know, is desperately in need of reform on so many different Mm. levels. But let's also acknowledge that the real issue here is not just the the practices of parliament. It's it's about the entire political class and their ambition, the 16-hour working days, uh, you know, the ruthless way in which politics is conducted in this country – You can reform the working conditions inside Parliament all you like. That's not going to change factional pre-selection or the way that political parties deal with minorities. doesn't change the game. It it really doesn't, no. No, exactly. Ben, it's been great to uh, talk with you about the federal budget and Labor's response. And uh, I I guess we'll keep an eye on all of this and see what happens, particularly uh, the fact that the coalition wants to legislate this tax package ASAP and uh, whether that's really going to happen is up to anyone. Oh, very little chance of that getting through the Senate, in my opinion. Mm, mm. Ben, thank you very much. And we'll chat to you not next week, but the week after. Yeah, thanks, Amy. You're going to take a week off next week. Yep. Ben is taking a week off because we uh, we love him and we want him to have a break and be refreshed and recharged and ready for another round in the ring to talk about federal politics. It can be harrowing at times to discuss these issues. I'm just overexposed, Amy, I think. Overexposed. <laughs> yeah. Aren't we all? Yeah. yeah. No, you I must can be relate sick of me that. by now, I'm sure. No. <laughs> Never, never. That said, uh, we should just mention we didn't get any craft beer from the breakfasters, so... I'm going to head over right now Yeah, Ben's going to go collect the leftovers. <laughs> <laughs> that said, always consume in moderation, everyone. Well, I'm Gillian Triggs, and you're listening to Amy Mullins on Uncommon Sense. And you are tuned to 3RRFM. As Gillian said, this is Uncommon Sense. And I have with me now in the studio Nick McClellan, who is a correspondent uh, with Ireland's Business Magazine. Um, and he's also a researcher and has written a book, um, which is called, let me get the full title, Grappling with the Bomb, Britain's Pacific H-Bomb Tests, which was out through ANU Press. And you can read it online. Uh, you can also buy it in print. And Nick has also written an article which is very easily accessible to you all and uh, fairly quick to read if you want to get a good understanding of what we're talking about, um, which is called The Commonwealth's Secret Bomb and it's up on the Inside Story website. So I have with me now Nick. 
Hi, Nick. Good morning, Amy. Morning. Thank you so much uh, for joining us today. And it's really great to be able to talk with you about this because these are tests which are probably a bit lesser known than the US nuclear tests that were done, particularly around the Marshall Islands. They've had a great deal more exposure. I think people know the name of Bikini Atoll uh, Mm. in the Marshall Islands or even Mururoa Atoll in French Polynesia, where the United States and France conducted their nuclear tests. Many Australians obviously know about Maralinga. The British did 12 atomic tests in Australia, starting in 1952 uh, till 1957, at uh, three sites, at the Montebello Islands, off West Australia, at Emu Field and then at Maralinga. But very few people know about the tests at Christmas and Maldon Island, Um, After the British developed the atomic weapons in Australia, they wanted the H-bomb, the hydrogen bomb, much more powerful thermonuclear weapons. And um, so the book I've written is based on a number of years of research and interviews with people trying to gather a story that's largely disappeared from history. It has. It's called Operation Grapple and uh, it was in the 1950s, the latter 1950s, wasn't it? And it had a range of um, tests conducted within that time frame. Can you um, give us a a bit of an understanding of um, what this operation involved and where exactly it was? Because I guess the the British relationship to these islands is a bit different nowadays, given that um, we were in the height of, uh, or probably the end of colonisation around that time and now we're into an era where um, these islanders, uh, many of the islands are independent nations. You're right. At the time, Britain was a colonial power in the Pacific, um, was colonial power in Fiji, for example, up until 1970, um, in many other places across the region, including what were called the British Gilbert and Ellis Islands. These are a number of island chains spread across the central Pacific near the equator, Um, And today, uh, the Gilbert and Ellis Islands are two nations, Tuvalu, um, a country of about 10,000 people, which were the Ellis Islands, Mm. and Kiribati spread across an area as wide as Australia in the central Pacific. And um, the two uh, test locations, Malden Island and Christmas Island, are both today part of the nation of Kiribati. But in those days, it was a British colony. And Britain, after the Second World War, was looking for vast empty spaces to test their nuclear weapons Um, and that's why the deserts of Australia, the islands of the Central Pacific were chosen as sites. Of course we know that these weren't empty sites, that they were um, inhabited by Indigenous communities and also um, thousands of servicemen and some women came to Australia and to Kiribati for this testing program Um, and so you know the link between colonialism and nuclear testing is true for the Americans, the British, the French, right through this period. Indeed, f- over 50 years, starting in 1946, the Western powers tested over 300 nuclear weapons in the Pacific, both in the atmosphere and underground. And that's left a legacy of health problems, environmental problems that exist to this day. Exactly. And let's talk about the leadership of Britain and how the decision was made that they were going to um, conduct these tests and particularly to expand their program because they were wanting to ensure after the Second World War that they were still able to protect themselves, that they weren't reliant upon um, the US for support. And also we knew that um, the Soviets were 
were testing their own um, bombs at the time. So there was this kind of pressure, I guess, for Britain to enter the race and to make sure that they were competitive. And Churchill, Winston Churchill, one of those figures that we certainly um, revere in a way for his you know, efforts in World War Two to defeat Hitler and the Nazis um, was really behind this program, wasn't he? Very much so. It began, though, with, with the Labor government, um, Prime Minister Clement Attlee, after the war. The Americans in 1946, having dropped the bomb on Hiroshima, banned the transfer of nuclear technology, even to allies. So the United Kingdom decided that they'd begin their own nuclear program. They began developing atomic weapons... But Churchill in 1954 was really inspired by what was called the Bravo test. Mm. The Americans, having developed atomic weapons themselves, wanted more powerful thermonuclear weapons or hydrogen bombs. Mm. These are massive weapons. The bomb drop on Hiroshima was about 15,000 kilotons, the equivalent of... uh, 15 kilotons, uh, that's the 15,000 tonnes of TNT equivalent. But the Bravo test... 1st of March 1954, was a million tonnes of TNT equivalent, a megaton. And Churchill saw the American test. It was a massive impact on him politically and decided that Britain too needed to develop these more powerful thermonuclear weapons. Britain had lost a lot of uh, economic power during the Second World War. Its empire was crumbling. Um, The independence of India, of Palestine... uh, Um, uh, rebellion in Cyprus, Malaya, all over the British Empire. And so having nuclear weapons would keep it on the high table of international affairs. Because of extensive American and Russian testing, there was also pressure for what was called a partial test ban treaty to ban the testing of weapons in the atmosphere. So Britain was in a rush to test these nuclear weapons, these more powerful hydrogen bombs. Um, And uh, so they decided that... um, Having been refused the right to test in Australia and New Zealand these powerful weapons, they used their own colony in the Central Pacific. And that's where uh, um, a further nine H-bomb tests were conducted um, on Malden Island and then later on Christmas Island. Mm. And I found it really interesting when you were talking or writing about um, the US uh, tests of their first um, hydrogen bombs and you were looking at, I mean, how they were literally picked up by planes and transported across to the Marshall Islands. You were really kind of um, making us really understand the size and scale of such an operation and how they've perhaps, um, I guess, advanced over time as well. They're not necessarily the same size as they once were. Um, But you say that the Mike uh, bomb that was dropped by the US in Operation Ivy um, was a clumsy beast, larger than a house, weighing 65 tonnes and requiring refrigeration to keep the hydrogen fuel liquid until detonation. Um, But it vaporised the coral islet of L.U. Galap, and I excuse my pronunciation, and left a crater 60 metres deep. So, you know, that's just one of the first hydrogen bomb tests that was done by the US. I mean, how was the British, um, I guess, scale of their bombs of a similar type? The British tests weren't quite as large as the American ones. Mm. The largest American test was 15 megatons, which is an enormous weapon. The Soviet Union also conducted even bigger tests. But the British were very eager to, to... achieve weapons in the megaton range, um, basically so they could flatten the Soviet cities with one bomb. That was the threat at the time. Um, 
And so the first three tests on Malden Island didn't quite reach that range. Um, And so they relocated the testing to Christmas Island. But on Christmas Island, there was a military base established for this testing program. As you say, this was a huge logistic exercise. They literally had to bring supplies, troops, equipment from halfway around the world um, to the Central Pacific. Um, And so a whole naval task force was deployed. And the British looked to support from regional countries, obviously from Australia. Um, the testing at Maralinga developed atomic triggers that were used in this later H-bomb testing. Um, New Zealand was asked to send naval frigates, and so two New Zealand ships uh, with over 550 sailors participated in the tests as part of the British Naval Task Force. Canada too, another Commonwealth country, was involved. The Canadians set up a nuclear reactor that produced uh, plutonium, tritium and other nuclear materials that were used by the British. Mm-hmm. Indeed, Australia provided uranium from Mary Kathleen in Queensland for the British nuclear program. Um, and Canada also supplied access to their air bases um, where the bomb literally had to be flown from England to the test site. And so they stopped off in Canada and the United States, Hawaii on the mm-hmm. way through to the Central Pacific. So this was very much a Commonwealth effort. Australia, New Zealand, uh, um, Canada were involved in supporting the British effort um, as part of the Anglosphere in those days. Obviously, other British colonies and uh, former parts of the British Empire, like India, were deeply opposed to this. And uh, um, there's this sort of tension where we see the Anglosphere nations supporting the British nuclear program, but many other former British colonies, like India, were beginning to speak out against the threat of nuclear weapons by all the superpowers, um, United States, Russia and uh, Britain. Mm. And I want to talk about um, Australia's support of this because uh, Robert Menzies was our Prime Minister at the time, a Liberal Prime Minister, and um, in terms of the atmospheric testing program in Australia, it was conducted with the agreement and support of Menzies without initially getting approval from Cabinet. So that's quite a controversial element, isn't it? It's very much a feature of this nuclear period, the the secrecy Mm. involved in it. I mean, Clement Attlee, the British Prime Minister, began uh, the, the, made the decision to begin the bomb in 1946, and they spent £100 million before they informed Parliament that Britain was developing its own nuclear weapons. It was the same within Australia. Menzies and his then Minister Supply, Minister for Supply, a guy called Howard Beale, um, secretly decided, without full Cabinet approval, to allow the testing to go ahead in Australia. And Howard Beale was very much an enthusiastic supporter of the the weapons program. He said at the time, England has the bomb and the know-how. We have the open spaces, much technical skill and great willingness to help the motherland. So at this time, you know, those colonial ties with Britain were still strong. Obviously, the, the... you know, the vast open spaces were Aboriginal land, the Anungu people of, uh, of uh, South Australia. Um, Maralinga Jurucha land was used uh, for the atomic testing uh, in Australia and also for the testing of nuclear components. Even after the atmospheric nuclear tests, right up until 1963, the British con- conducted a series of experiments doing things like burning plutonium to see what would happen, for example, if a plane crashed with a nuclear bomb on board. And those nuclear tests did a lot of damage that is still there contaminating areas with plutonium, americium, other nuclear materials to this very day. It's a a sacrifice zone created uh, on Aboriginal land in South Australia. 
And this is the problem that Indigenous communities, neighbouring communities, bore the brunt of this testing program. The numbers of Indigenous mm. people were small, but um, they were still there. And it was only mm. with the Royal Commission in 1985 that a lot of the information came out about how Aboriginal people had been mistreated. Yes, some of them had been moved and then others had still remained in that area where the testing was being conducted. And there was a cynicism about this at the time, a casual racism towards so-called primitive peoples. In researching my book Grappling with the Bomb, I looked into the British Colonial Office archives and found a lot of, um, you know, information, archival research from the British military. They knew before the tests that there were hazards from ionising radiation. They set up uh, elaborate safety measures on paper, but in reality these were often uh, avoided and shortcuts were taken. Um, And, uh, for example, we found a document from 1956 from the commander of the operation, uh, Air Vice Marshal Wilfred Alton, who acknowledged that there was a danger area and that uh, so-called primitive peoples within the danger area, those that didn't wash or wear clothes, according to him, um, were at greater risks than the military personnel who came. Mm. Indeed, they knew that primitive peoples, so-called, faced 16 times the accepted level set by uh, medical authorities at the time. So there was knowledge that people were at risk and yet the tests went ahead. And that was particularly the case with the the grapple tests. Mm. The first three didn't reach the level that they wanted and so instead of sailing a task force from Christmas Island 600-odd miles south to Malden to do the tests, they simply relocated them to the end of Christmas Island where thousands of British, New Zealand, Fijian military personnel were based. Exactly. And so... um you know, cutting corners and saving time uh, by relocating and and that pressure that you mentioned um, that they were under to get this done before there was a ban, any kind of ban on the testing that they were doing um, was what really kind of brought them to this point, the second part of these tests in the Pacific. Um, Can you talk a bit about those tests and the people that were involved there? Because as you said, it wasn't just British people, it was New Zealanders who had been been called upon um, on their frigates to join, as well as uh, Fijians who were part of um, the military and other troops there who were potentially, um, some of them, not even aware that they were going to be involved in um, bomb tests until right before. In the book, um, I interview a lot of the survivors. Um, um, these are people now in their 80s uh, because the tests were conducted 60 years ago. They were often young men, and they were men mostly, um, who were there. There were three or 4,000 British troops on the island at any one time, but my book focuses on the experience of people from the Southern Hemisphere. So New Zealand sailors aboard the frigates Bukaki and Rotuiti um, who were there. There were 276 Fijian participants Fiji, as I mentioned, was a British colony at that time and so people were part of the British Army through the Fiji military forces or the what was called the Fiji Royal Naval Volunteer Reserve. So the Fijian soldiers and sailors were serving on the island. And there were also some Gilbertese, some Micronesian islanders living on Christmas Island at the time. There'd been a plantation there since the early part of the 20th century and there were dozens of uh, families located there who uh, were plantation workers, uh, women and children included. Um, When the military operation began, the plantation was shut down 
and uh, many of the Gilbertese men were working as labourers to support um, the British uh, with difficult, dirty tasks that um, others didn't want to do. So you had that mixture of British, Fijian, New Zealander, um, Ikitabas, Gilbertese uh, people on the island. And in the book, I, I spent a lot of time both looking at the archives to find out what it meant for them, but also just talking to people and getting their stories. And it's part of history that's really been written out of history. Mm. These the young Fijians, for example, were told when they came home not to talk about it under official secrets acts. These were young guys, 18, 90, 20. It was often the first job they'd ever had, often the first time certainly they'd travelled out of Fiji. Um, they were told that they were going for training exercises aboard a British warship, but no one told them before they went that they were going to participate in a nuclear weapons program. And it was only when they were on Christmas Island that they were briefed that next week there'll be a, an H-bomb going off. And um, as I interviewed them, I found some of them were a bit vague on dates and details, but they remembered vividly, with, as if it was yesterday, the image of this massive bomb explosion um, they were lined up uh, either ashore or on the decks of the Naval Task Force, backs to the blast, hands covering their eyes so because of the flash of the, the detonation. And then as the bomb exploded, as the mushroom cloud rose over the sky, they turned around to watch this. Um, and uh, the British said it was safe, of course, that the tests were conducted in the air far enough away from the, the troops that they wouldn't be facing hazards. But we know today that that's incorrect and that there were serious um, hazards of ionising radiation for these participants. Yes, and one of the um, concerns was the radioactive effects um, on those people affected, the Brits, the um, New Zealanders and the Fijians. And in some of the tests, there was a great deal of... um, I guess, protective clothing, and in others there wasn't, particularly the ones after, later on. Um, They didn't have full-body clothing and they were quite exposed, um, their skin being exposed to the blast that occurred. You know, over time the British got more lackadaisical with safety measures. For example, in the early tests in Australia, uh, people were issued with a film badge, just a, a bit like an x-ray exposes um you know you can see how much radiation is coming on a, on a piece of film and about 90 percent of participants in the early days in australia were given film badges but by the time of operation grapple in 1957 58 only about 20 percent of participants were given those badges and even then those badges weren't developed all the new zealand badges were collected and sent back to England and then thrown away without ever being tested. So there's no record of the level of exposure for the New Zealand sailors. Mm. Um, There were regulations to say, for example, that you shouldn't eat fish um, that might have been contaminated by the fallout from these massive uh, mushroom clouds. Um, And yet we have photos and oral testimony from the Fijians, from the Gilbertese workers, about how they caught fish and ate them because Pacific Islanders, of course, we ate crabs and fish and so on. And there's a lot of stories about how the Scottish troops used to buy the beer and the Fijians would go fishing and they'd have beach parties. These were young guys in the middle of paradise, so it appeared. Mm. And being told by the British officers not to eat the fish, well, they did. Um, So there were pathways for people to ingest um, radioactive isotopes that could later affect their health. Uh, Particularly the pilots had the worst of it. After each uh, detonation... 
um, Canberra bombers were sent to fly through the mushroom cloud to gather samples of radioactivity, and that could help determine the yield, the, the massive power of the, uh, the explosion. And the pilots um, had the worst casualty rates um, from 76 Squadron. Many people were, were seriously exposed to very high levels of radiation, and a number died um, from leukaemia, cancer and other, other illnesses later on. So the British suggestion that, oh, we had very good safety standards wasn't played out in reality. Um, and, uh, you know, often Fijian and, uh, and Gilbertese workers were given some of the, the worst jobs. Um, in the book I interview a Fijian sailor, Paul Arpoi, and one of the jobs he was given was to dump drums of contaminated uh, materials and clothes and other things into the ocean. Um, he only discovered this when uh, he was sitting on the drum and a British uh, sergeant major knocked him off the drum, said, don't sit on that, you'll ruin your wedding tackle, um, <laughs> so to speak. He was, um, you know, he was being told to take these out in a small boat and chuck them over the side into the ocean. So these sort of stories are really important to document mm. because the British continue to this day to say that people weren't exposed, beyond the pilots really, to hazardous levels of, of radiation. But we know that's not true. Mm, exactly. And uh, you do quote one of the um, the assistant uh, trials planning officers from the Atomic Weapons Research Establishment, and that was a British organisation. And uh, the man was Ernest Cox, who was flown in by helicopter from HMS Warrior to Malden Island after the test, one of the tests, to retrieve scientific instruments. And you say that he soon noted that everything was not quite right. Quote, I said to my aunt helper what the hell is wrong and what the hell are we doing here we both had a strange feeling we noticed no flies no movement of lizards and no booby birds we found several burnt and dead birds and in the distance we heard one of the three wild pigs but we didn't dare approach too close to it it was badly burnt and was going around in circles blind i said this bloody place is contaminated and what the hell are we doing here i mean it sounds apocalyptic well these are incredibly powerful weapons and and even though many of the tests were conducted in the atmosphere in you know up in the air rather than on ground mm -hmm. as a way of reducing radioactive fallout from that sort of testimony, it's clear that there were hotspots of radioactivity on Molden Island. That was after the second test. And we know of this, um, you know, days after being taken back to the British Naval Task Force, um, Cox had uh, tests and he had blisters, radiation burns all over his legs and was found to have a very high level of exposure. The story that really came out about this was after this second test, um, the Orange Herald test, in um, June 1957, a high chief from Fiji was there visiting the Fijian sailors and he went on shore. This was a man named Ratu Panayanganalau. Panayanganalau was a very high chief in Fiji and um, he uh, later became the Governor-General and then President of Fiji in the 1980s. So a very distinguished uh, uh, figure. And he um, went ashore on Malden Island, flown in by helicopter, like the British soldier just described. And um, he was a big man, over six foot five, and so they didn't have boots big enough for him. So he went sort of without um, onto the island. Now, later in life, he came down with significant health problems. Um, uh, he died of leukaemia um, in an American military hospital. Um, he had Guillain Barre disease, which is a Barre disease, which is an um, autoimmune disease. 
and his two younger sons, both born after um, uh, the 1957 test, um, didn't have children. And so his older uh, children had fa- all had large families. His two younger sons uh, were both incapable of having children. So it's a story that hadn't really been told very much publicly. Uh, you know, this is the Governor-General, um, the Queen's representative, indeed knighted by Queen Elizabeth uh, for his service to the British Empire. And yet his family um, uh, provided interviews uh, for the book, provided photos and so on, because they wanted their father's story told. They can't, of course, prove conclusively that um, uh, his presence on Christmas Island um, caused his later illness, and that's one of the big problems. Um, um, many of the health problems, cancers and the like, that come can be caused by uh, exposure to uh, radiation, but can also be caused by a range of other things. And in fact, many people get cancer from smoking, from a whole range of things. And so the issue of causation has been a real problem for people to prove that their service on Christmas Island actually caused illness, sometimes years, even decades later in life. Um, but uh, um, Rochester Panaya's family uh, certainly believed that uh, uh, his illness was linked to his time uh, on Christmas Island. Yes, and I want to talk about um, how the British were trying to manage some of the interests and stakeholders and also protesters at the time because um, there was uh, a man who was a businessman um, who had many, I guess, business interests in the Pacific Islands around this area and he was seeking assurances from the British government that these tests would not harm his business um, because he had... had a lot of harm and um, lost a lot of money during World War II to his crops when he had to burn them. Um, This is something which I found particularly interesting because it affected the danger zone and how they were mapping out where they said um, there was a danger zone and where it needed to exclude boats, for example, um, other people and where other people needed to be beyond this danger zone. The man you're talking about is James Burns, who was the the boss of uh, Burns Philpin Co. This was a large Australian training house that was involved in copra plantations, in tourism, uh, in a whole range of investments across the Pacific. And Burns was one of the the major businessmen um, uh, from Australia at the time operating in the Pacific. Um, We mentioned there was a plantation on Christmas Island, but there were a range of plantations owned by Burns Philpin Company on neighbouring islands, on uh, Jarvis, Washington, Fanning and and others. Um, These were inhabited islands, therefore, um, just some hundreds of miles away from Christmas Island and Molden Island where the tests were conducted. The British did declare a danger area to warn off planes and shipping um, but we found in the archives, uh, a colleague Wadden Nasi uh, was the first to notice this, um, that they redrew the danger area to basically exclude all the inhabited islands where Burnsville plantations were located and where there were um, local plantation workers. Um, so uh, we found in the archives, and it's in pub- republished from the Colonial Office archives in the book, a map, uh, instead of drawing a neat 400-mile circle around uh, Christmas Island and Malden Island as a, an estimate of the test zone, um, the danger area for the test, they instead drew square lines rather than circles, and the squares just happened to cut out all the inhabited islands in the area. And this allowed Prime Minister Harold Macmillan, the British Prime Minister, to stand up in Parliament and say that there were no inhabited islands within the danger zone. 
And the reason for that was they'd literally drawn the danger zone. You can see the pencil marks on the map in the, in the reproduction in the book. Um, they'd redrawn the danger zone to exclude mm. places where there were um, plantation workers. And, and Burns, um, James Burns was quite angry about what he called hydrogen bomb antics because he'd seen what had happened in South Australia and he was anxious that he would um, face loss for his business. He wasn't particularly concerned about the plantation workers, but he was worried about the potential damage to his business. And um, so we think of protesters against nuclear weapons mm-hmm. um, coming from Greenpeace in, in future times and so on. But at the time, there was pretty widespread opposition to this. And um, one of the things that I've, I've tried to do in the book is capture a range of people both a British pacifist named Harold Steele who tried to sail a boat into the region, Burns himself, um, but also a lot of Indigenous protest. Mm. You know, going right back to the beginning of the nuclear age, Pacific Islanders had an ambivalence to this. It was an opportunity to participate for the soldiers, as I mentioned, who went. It was a great adventure in some ways to travel, uh, to see the world. Certainly politicians like Robert Menzies used it to reinforce their loyalty to empire um, by supporting the tests. But there was also widespread opposition from Indigenous peoples across the Pacific. And um, from the archives, we found all sorts of examples of petitions, for example, by Marshall Islanders against the US nuclear tests, protesting to the um, UN Trusteeship Council. Um, Western Samoa petitioned the UN Trusteeship Council to halt the operations. They were in New Zealand territory at the time um, and were very concerned. Um, They lost by nine to one. Only Russia supported their protest. Mm. New Zealand voted together with the British and the Americans against the Samoan people at the Trusteeship Council. Uh, In the Cook Islands, the Rarotonga Island Council, these are the Ariki, the customary chiefs of the Cooks, protested. In Fiji, there were newspaper editorials. Um, One Indo-Fijian newspaper said, nations engaged in testing these bombs in the Pacific should realise the value of the lives of people settled in this part of the world. They too are human beings, not guinea pigs. So it wasn't just the um, protests from peace movements around the Pacific Rim. People in the Pacific were saying, we don't want to be guinea pigs Mm. as the Western allies develop their nuclear weapons. And this is the contrast I I had in the article about the Commonwealth secret bomb, that you had Anglosphere leaders from Australia, New Zealand, Canada supporting the British nuclear weapons program, but people in the colonies at the time actively speaking out against this program and really calling for an end to atmospheric nuclear testing, something that occurred in 1963 after the Americans and the the Russians had done enough testing. They signed the Partial Test Ban Treaty, which Britain Britain reluctantly joined, um, but they got the bomb by then. Exactly. So really what you're saying is these protest movements were happening at the grassroots in these um, Pacific Island communities well before even some of the uh, major protest groups we know today that are involved in anti-nuclear movements. And I think that's one of the things that, that is a central theme of the book, that Pacific Islanders were not simply victims in all this, that they were active participants as I say, some were soldiers and sailors uh, were involved in working as labourers in the whole operation and others were actively campaigning. I, I interviewed many years ago a woman named Marie-Therese Danielson. She and her husband, Bengt, wrote a famous book called Mururoa Monamua, published in the mid-70s, which spoke out against French nuclear testing. It was one of the earliest public statements um, 
But when I interviewed Mary Therese, I said, how did you get interested in this? And she said, back in 1950, we were anthropologists in the Tuamotu Archipelago, one of the five archipelagos that make up French Polynesia, the French colony in the Pacific. And one day the copra boat arrived and this guy jumped off uh, and wanted people to sign a petition against nuclear weapons. It was 1950. There was a man named Puvana Opa, who's a famous Tahitian independence leader. At the time, he was a church leader, a deacon in the church. He'd seen uh, in the first service in the First World War and been involved with the Americans during the Second World War. As he heard of nuclear weapons, he decided that nothing should, um, that, that people shouldn't uh, uh, be developing these weapons. And so he wanted to collect signatures for what was called the Stockholm Peace Appeal. This was an, an agreement put out uh, calling for the abolition of nuclear weapons, ban on nuclear testing. Over 32 million people signed it in the 1950s. And here was this guy going round on a copra boat collecting signatures in the outer atolls. So Murray Therese and her husband, Bengt, were anthropologists in the middle of the nowhere studying native moors on this isolated island mm. and some guys collecting signatures against nuclear weapons. 25 years later, they write a book that makes them famous for their opposition. But it was this... Polynesian activists who inspired them. I think that's really important when we think today about the struggles around climate change. The same process is happening. You know, a lot of the rhetoric that comes out is, oh, we have to help these poor Pacific Islanders, Mm. you know, they're threatened by sea level rise. Yet Pacific communities, Pacific governments are very active in Mm. the global negotiations on climate change. They're not sitting back and saying, let's just wait and go glug, glug, glug. In fact, they've you know, been leading the charge. They're really. leading the charge. They're yeah. calling on Australia to shut down its coal industry. They're calling for more climate finance, uh, for greater action on adaptation and mitigation, to use the jargon. And mm-hmm. I think we see the same thing in the nuclear era that people weren't simply victims sitting there, although they bore the brunt, Indigenous people bore the brunt of nuclear testing, but they were actively protesting it right from the beginning of the nuclear age. And I think that's something for Australians to think about that our near neighbours are not victims in all of these issues around environmental damage, around nuclear testing, around climate change. They have their own positions, their own perspectives and their own activism that maybe we should be working alongside and supporting. Exactly. And that's a good point that many of the people listening may know Kiribati because um, they are hugely under threat from climate change by sea level rises and have already lost land um, from their islands due to the sea enveloping parts of the outer parts of their island. So, I mean, they are really at the front line in terms of dealing firsthand with the impacts of climate change and, you know, these kind of low-level lying islands, not just Kiribati but other islands around the Pacific, are probably one of the greatest um, areas at threat from climate change at the moment. And people make the connection between the the environmental and social and economic impacts of climate change Mm. and the past era of nuclear testing. Nuclear testing went on for 50 years in the Pacific and people are living with the consequences today. And many Pacific Islanders draw the analogy saying the responsibility lies with Northern Hemisphere powers, largely, with Europeans, with the Americans, increasingly with the Chinese and Indians. Um, Yet we, the smallest country in the world, are bearing the brunt 
of the actions of other major powers as they play their geopolitical games. Mm -hmm. And you see that today with Donald Trump threatening fire and fury on the people of Korea, Kim Jong-un threatening to launch missiles uh, to explode a hydrogen bomb above the Pacific. Well, the Americans did that in 1962, um, firing missiles from Johnston Atoll. The electromagnetic pulse blacked out the lights of Honolulu. So the Americans have already done it. Now the North Koreans are following in their footstep Mm. and peoples in the Pacific are saying enough is enough. And so today many Pacific countries have signed the new treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons, a global treaty adopted in July last year, now signed by uh, nearly 60 countries, uh, just ratified last week by Palau, Pacific Mm. Island country, uh, the first to ratify it, um, with many more to come. Um, These are our neighbours saying enough is enough. We have to move towards abolition of nuclear weapons, not just uh, arms control, not just uh, minimising this. Yes, and notable that Australia hasn't signed on to this and doesn't support it. Indeed, we actively oppose the negotiations, whereas our near neighbours, not just Pacific countries, but New Zealand, Indonesia, Thailand, Malaysia, Philippines have all signed this treaty, Mm. are all moving towards ratification. Um, You know, we're very much isolated and... You know, we're following Donald Trump uh, at a time uh, that is quite scary uh, where, um, you know, the threat to uh, breach the Iran nuclear weapons uh, agreement, uh, the the potential for the North Korean negotiations to go down the tube. Um, We live in difficult times and that's why you're seeing non-nuclear states saying we need to take action. We can't wait for the nuclear weapons powers, Israel, the United States, Russia, China to act We have a responsibility and this new treaty has got momentum from countries that are not involved in nuclear weapon systems saying enough is enough. And that's where our neighbours like New Zealand are moving pretty rapidly to ratify the treaty. Um, We stand separate from our Pacific Island Forum partners on this question. Mm. I'm talking with Nick McClellan, who is the author of a book, Grappling with the Bomb, Britain's Pacific H-Bomb Tests. And we've been talking about Operation Grapple, which is a British operation in the Pacific um, testing hydrogen bombs. And Nick, I want to finish our conversation by talking about the fallout and the environmental and health implications that um, still exist today from these tests. And uh, we know that there were many measure, measurement stations around Australia, but also around the Pacific to try and test and gauge what kind of um, impacts these, were ha- these tests were having, what kind of, um, you know... Uh, I guess toxic waste was being spread out into the air through the wind and dispersed across the ocean but also onto land. I mean, first up environmentally, what are the current um, impacts that exist that are still affecting islanders and Australians? Well, some of the radioactive isotopes are long-lasting. They talk about a half-life, which is the time that half of the radioactive material will decay Some isotopes are are very fast decaying and so they may disappear within days, uh, weeks. But others are long-lasting and so plutonium lasts 24,400 years as a half-life. So essentially it's with us forever. Um, So the plutonium contamination in the deserts of South Australia uh, is a a hazard really for time onwards, um, well beyond human uh, reckoning. 
Um, and that's true in the Marshall Islands, the northern atolls, particularly Rongelap, Bikini and Iwitok are severely contaminated um, and many people have been unable to return to their home islands. They were relocated during the testing program in the late 1940s, 1950s and um, I've interviewed people in the book who are still living in Majro, the capital, mm-hmm. unable to return to their home on Rongelap, for example, uh, where they were relocated after 1954. It's the same at Mururoa and Fungotofa. The French atolls are severely contaminated with plutonium um, and other radioactive isotopes. So these also spread, however, over vast distances. Um, in the book, we talk a lot about strontium 90, which is a, a byproduct of these nuclear tests. And in the 1950s, there was a lot of concern that strontium was being carried literally around the world by high level winds in the stratosphere and upper atmosphere. And um, at the time, the Western allies did a lot of studies about how much strontium was accumulating in people's bones and teeth and so on. And there was this uh, rather obscene program called Project Sunshine, don't you love the name, Mm. where the Americans and British uh, nuclear authorities wanted to sample um, body parts, uh, bones, teeth and so on to determine how much strontium was being taken in because of American, Russian, British nuclear testing. And so in 19 countries around the world, they started to collect samples, and this is bones and teeth. They often used dead children, um, um, and this was often without informed consent from the parents, um, children that had died in hospital. Medical scientists would take samples. uh, And in Australia, we're not small numbers. We're talking about uh, records we found... uh, 21,000 samples were taken in Australia and the then territory of Papua New Guinea and the bones incinerated sent to England for testing about how much strontium-90 was building up in the blood. So this was literally like body snatching Um, and there have been inquiries in recent years about the lack of ethics from the medical and scientific personnel involved in this program which began with good intentions but spilled over to, to the stage where you know, uh, completely unethical behaviour as uh, scientists were studying this. There's another project called Project 4.1 where American scientists looked at the people um, in the northern part of the Marshall Islands who'd been very badly irradiated by the Bravo test, people from Rongelap and uh, Eniwitok and other atolls. And uh, they were tests conducted over decades um, as a human study group Basically, uh, the Russians did the same thing and I'm sure that today uh, other samples are being taken from people in in other nuclear countries. Um, Mm. All of this governed by nuclear secrecy without the normal accountability that scientists, medical doctors should have to their peers uh, for these sorts of health studies. Um, The nuclear state is a secret state and um, one of the reasons I wrote the book was to really break through some of the silence about these things to show that even with good intentions... Um, indigenous people, service personnel bore the brunt of this racist behaviour during the 1950s. Mm. And do we know the outcome of those strontium-90 tests? Well, a lot of the documents are still hidden. Um, we, For example, um, there was an operation called Operation Aconite where Royal Air Force planes, British planes, flew out of Darwin 
to collect samples from the uh, American tests in the Marshall Islands. I found references to it and went looking for the documents, but they're still closed to public scrutiny in the UK National Archives. Mm. I've got the file numbers, there's three files, but uh, can't get access to them because of national security uh, reasons. And uh, there's a lot of stuff about radiation data um, from the, the grapple tests that's still not available. And this has been a problem for the British and New Zealand Fijian veterans as they've taken this issue to court and failed before the British courts because they can't get access to all the documents they need to prove the hazards that they were exposed to. And uh, this is an ongoing struggle. Even 60 years after the tests, um, British, New Zealand, uh, Fijians are still campaigning for compensation from the UK government, which refuses to this day to have a general compensation scheme for its nuclear survivors. Mm, the strong denial of the, of the huge impacts that would have occurred. Well, we're entering a new nuclear age. Mm. Um, we're having debates about this, about North Korea, about Iran, about America, about Russia today, modernising their nuclear arsenals. And one of the reasons I wrote the book was to say, we haven't cleaned up the legacies from 60 years ago. There are still people living with the health and environmental consequences of past nuclear testing. And you want to modernise nuclear weapons? I think it's really important that we look at our past to understand the present. And to understand, just as there was resistance in the past to nuclear testing, so there are countries campaigning for the treaty for the prohibition of nuclear weapons, saying enough is enough today. Sadly, Australia hasn't joined its neighbours to support this treaty, but we should. And uh, with an election coming up in the next year, this is maybe an issue that Australians should be asking their political parties, what's your position on the treaty? Mm, that's a really great point. Nick, um, that's where we're going to have to end this uh, interview. It's been fascinating speaking with you about this and uh, I really commend you on all the research you've been doing and uh, and talking about this with us. Nick is a journalist and researcher in the Pacific Islands and Australia and he's a correspondent for the Inside Business Magazine, oh, sorry, Islands Business Magazine, uh, which is based in Fiji. And uh, you can read... Nick McClellan's book, which is we've been discussing, Grappling with the Bomb, Britain's Pacific H-Bomb Tests um, on the ANU uh, Books Publications website. And you can also read that article that you have written in Inside Story called The Commonwealth's Secret Bomb. Nick McClellan, thanks for joining me. Amy, thanks very much for having me. And uh, as I mentioned, that was Nick McClellan, a researcher and journalist um, who has done such great work on uh, the British nuclear testing uh, in the Pacific Islands called Operation Grapple and it's a fascinating read and um, also a harrowing read but important to face up to the consequences of uh, Australia's actions as well as those in the Commonwealth and Britain. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR-FM. And uh, as I said, I'm really delighted to have with me uh, on the phone Anne Mann, who is a writer and social uh, philosopher and commentator. And she's written an excellent article, which is the cover of the monthly. And uh, if you look at the, the cover of the monthly, I really love the headline. It's called Gross Domestic Hoax, How the Australian Economy Rests on Women's Unpaid Work. And uh, it's just perfectly worded there. And I'm going to speak now with Anne, who joins me on the phone to discuss this issue. Hi, Anne. 
Uh, hello, Amy. Thank you Good so much for you. joining me. That's great to have you. Now, um, I'd really like to to talk about this article. It's a great long-form article. It's worth reading in full um, for anyone who's interested, and I'm sure they will be after our chat. Uh, but this is something, this is an issue that's been going on for decades centuries in fact but uh, in terms of the discussion that we've been having it has been um, that discussion has been had by various people for a very long time and one of those people that you talk about and you really kind of um, use to highlight this issue is Marilyn Waring and uh, and I loved the way that you opened the article um, talking about her own experience as a carer of her father but also her mother um, and and how she, a professor of public policy at Auckland University of Technology, um, was really considered the founder of feminist economics. She was a Nobel Prize nominee in 2005 and here she is um, doing something so important uh, in the last years of her father's life, which was being his primary carer. Uh, Can you talk a bit about this fascinating person and character, Marilyn Waring, and uh, I guess her her significance? Yes, well, I've been a fan of Marilyn Waring since 1988 when she first wrote a book which was absolutely groundbreaking at that time called... um, Uh, counting for nothing what men value and what women are worth and it was about um, unpaid labor and how women's unpaid labor um, and how it was not counted in gdp but it's 2018 and so uh, it's the 30th uh, anniversary of her uh, publication of that book and so i thought it was I've, i've been thinking for a couple of years i really want to raise this question of women's unpaid work and how that's really behind what I call in the article the unfinished revolution, the unfinished gender revolution. That's really the big reason why we still have inequality, uh, women, that women uh, have the lion's share of all of that work. But also want to, one of the reasons I really like Marilyn's work is that she always constitutes care work and household work and uh, all of that realm, uh, looking up to children, elders, uh, and so on, as a realm of value. So it's not simply characterised as shit work. It's actually seen as something very important that she herself had great respect for her mother and grandmothers that uh, helped to uh, rear her uh, back in a small community in New Zealand. So she has both that very positive sense of what women do, but at the same time, this uh, burning sense of the injustice, that it is unpaid, there is no um, uh, way that we give recompense and that it is also behind uh, women being uh, less free than men are to take their place on the public stage. And uh, she was a trailblazer herself, not only as an academic and a thinker on this topic, but she really discovered this issue and started thinking about it when she was herself a parliamentarian in New Zealand. That's right. She was one of the uh, very few uh, female New Zealand parliamentarians, one of the, the earliest, and it was a consequence of being a part of the women's electoral lobby in the 1970s and she was a young, um, shy person. She was 
uh, just uh, finished her uh, university degree in international uh, politics and she, um, as a part of Women's Electoral Lobby, had it, there was this push to stand female candidates because one of the arguments people had as, a, as to why there were so few female parliamentarians was to say, oh, well, they don't stand. So uh, the New Zealand uh, branch of, of Women's Electoral Lobby had women standing all over um, New Zealand and Marilyn was one of them. And no one really expected that she would gain pre-selection, but she was uh, someone who had a a really uncommon capacity to do research. So she was at this stage a part-time parliamentary uh, researcher. So she had access to the library and she would go after work and read all the little local papers that they used to come out twice a week. And she informed herself really thoroughly as to all the issues across the constituency. And apparently at the first pre-selection meeting, people were astonished by her knowledge of the area. And then in the um, second round, she had to go and see the uh, different constituents who were, were part of the voting process. And she mainly concentrated on the women. And one of the women she went to go and see was Catherine O'Regan. And uh, this is quite a characteristic story of of Marilyn. When she went there, Catherine, who was um, a farmer, was uh, trying to prepare food for the men on the farm and orange juice and scones. And she had a young toddler who was acting up. So Marilyn quietly said, oh, look, I'll take um, your little child out into the vegetable patch and look at the caterpillars on the cabbages. And then she came back and they sat on the step and uh, Catherine was able to get all her work done while uh, Marilyn was amusing her toddler. And she was so impressed by this completely unusual young woman and with that kind of uh, sensitivity. And uh, there was no... Uh, pretension about Marilyn either. She was quite capable of of, uh, just taking a a toddler and becoming a child carer for a little while. Uh, And then Catherine actually became the member um, for Weeper after um, Marilyn had had left politics. But the experience of politics itself was a searing experience of male domination and the most appalling behaviour very frequently. Um, There were jokes about um, raping um, uh, your wife. Um, there were you were meant to laugh along. There were physical, almost physical fights in the um, long corridors where they waited to, and queued for voting. Um, and she was frequently sort of thrown about. And the, her leader, she um, was a member of the National Party government. Um, Robert Muldoon was something of a of a bully as well. He was, and I mean, some of the quotes in there are quite shocking when, when you talk about, um, yeah, the jokes that they were making about uh, rape in marriage was just really, obviously, it's part of a time that existed, but that said, you can still um, hear some of that overt sexism around in politics uh, this day and age. So it's not totally gone. Um, but one of the things that Waring does is she uh, attends this World Conference on Women in Copenhagen in 1980 and she's um, a representative of New Zealand. And uh, I thought one of the interesting issues she took up um, 
before this issue of the GDP is about maternal mortality around the world and uh, and the phrase that was uh, in this document, men don't die in childbirth. I mean, it's an excellent point to make that this is one of the um, major contributions that women make that men cannot make um, is that they are not all women, but women who choose to have children or have children, um, you know, carry this child, uh, look after it um, during that time in the nine months that it's gestating. And then also afterwards, um, you know, they are the primary carer in most circumstances. And uh, I was really shocked that, uh, I mean, when she delved into this GDP issue, what the outcome was, how we were measuring GDP and where it was all based. Could you talk about um, Marilyn's involvement as chair of the Public Expenditure Committee in New Zealand and just kind of what she found out? Yes, that was uh, really the turning point, I think, for her in the beginning of this really original groundbreaking work on women's unpaid labour. Uh, Robert Muldoon had a bit of a problem. He didn't really want to put her in the cabinet because she was far too independent and was likely to cause trouble. But she was also the only woman uh, in his um, caucus at that point. And she uh, was, you know, to not give her something um, was would have been seen as discrimination, I suppose. So it was only in the 1970s, but people were starting to change on that issue. So instead of making a part of the cabinet... Um, knowing her formidable capacity for research, and she was known to be an incredibly hard worker who did her homework, he made her unexpectedly, in a way, the chair of the Public Expenditure Committee. And as chair of that committee, she had the capacity to, to ask um, both Treasury officials but also all sorts of government departments what information they had on women. And it was extraordinary that so many, that what she found was so many policies were being made, but without anyone ever asking questions as to how it would affect women and um, without any knowledge uh, about uh, women's lives. So um, at this point, she uh, registered just how unfair and, and inadequate the knowledge base was. But it was actually after she um, uh, left politics that she really began to make a study of it. And the study of it came from a, a, an exchange with a Treasury official where she called him after the Copenhagen conference. She called a Treasury official over and said, well, look, where does all this uh, calculation for GDP come from and why doesn't it include women's unpaid labour? And he, um, she was rather amusing about it because he just read this famous feminist text called The Women's Room. He'd been given it by his wife at Christmas. So she said that this uh, uh, newly sensitive Treasury official seemed to be on her side. And he said, look, uh, I, you know, he's, he's, he was sympathetic to her, but the, there was no uh, holding of the system of national accounts, which is what every government used around the world to determine GDP. Uh, there were no copies of the rules held in New Zealand. So Marilyn Waring said to him, oh, well, then get them from Australia. She said they have a cultural cringe over there and they expect Australia to have things that New Zealand doesn't. <laughs> and so they sent to Australia and he came back and he said, no, there's, there's nothing there either. So it was when she uh, left Parliament, and that was after she'd actually crossed the floor and uh, brought down the Muldoon government over the question of nuclear warships. She was an early environmentalist as well as a feminist and um, it was over the issue of nuclear warships entering New Zealand waters um, and 
she um, was um, uh, she, she wouldn't support the Maldive government on that question. And he only had a one-seat majority, and so he decided to call a snap election, and he, um, he, you know, he lost the next election. But it wasn't before he had become extremely drunk and quite abusive to her after finding out that she was going to cross the floor. Anyway, so she left politics after that and became a, um, a goat farmer, uh, but not before she'd gone to the United Nations in New York and looked at all the volumes of uh, the system of national accounts and looked at the question of women's unpaid work as to whether it was included there uh, and found uh, that it wasn't included and, and, and actually wept when she read the paragraph saying this work was of little or no importance when she thought back to the um, wonderful women who had raised her who were the linchpins of the local community who did so much work in not only rearing children or running farms but also in the, um, in the local community. It seemed um, a real cruelty to um, to put it in that way, and of course, with enormous implications for their lives, that uh, the unpaid labour, which took all of their time, was not counted. Yes, because this is an essential economic and social contribution, an important and vital one that, uh, that women are making that when they're raising children and, uh, you know, educating them, nurturing them to become productive citizens themselves. I mean, this is something which is, you know, almost invaluable in a way because it's so valuable, but how do you place a value on it and, um, and really adequately value this kind of work? Yes, well, that's a, one of the things she did was to, uh, to first of all point out that there are major distortions going on in the way we calculate GDP so that we don't count breastfeeding, for example, but we do count the manufacture of formula milk, uh, even though breastfeeding is understood to be better for children. Um, it is also the case that if you want, as the World Health Organization suggests, two years of breastfeeding, then what kind of, instead of treating it as if it's nothing and, and not um, counting it, then what kind of policies do you have to actually uh, support women in breastfeeding, not only in terms of longer parental leave, but how do you have workplaces that support breastfeeding mothers? How do you have childcare centres that support, you know, so all of these policies are actually contingent upon you counting it as labour and counting it as a value. In terms of counting, um, you know, just how much uh, money is involved in uh, all this unpaid labour, um, one estimate, for example, in uh, 2014, and that was using an average, which there's arguments about how you should do it. Most of the time, women's labour, unpaid labour, is just given a value according to the minimum hourly wage, and that actually devalues it because um, it, it, it um, we already don't pay childcare workers, for example, enough, and we already don't pay elder care workers enough, so it, it, it ends up being a lower figure than it should be. Um, the other way of calculating it is, is uh, for example, the replacement cost um, of uh, someone who's a chef or a housekeeper um, as opposed to someone who has the rate of a cleaner. Uh, but whatever the case, in, when they averaged it out in 2014... Uh, using you know the balance between different ways of calculating it, uh, they came to a figure um, of 43, more than 43 um, billion, or just under half of um, GDP. 
So it, it's a, a strange a kind of uh, world in which this labour is um, constitutes so much value and so much of a contribution, and without uh, that shadow world of unpaid labour and care, you wouldn't be able to have the visible economy. It's, it's actually riding on it all the time, but it's it's not counted and has enormous implication uh, for women's lives because they, although they're not, they don't only do it. You know, men do some of it. Um, women do far more of it. Yes, I mean, women have been doing the lion's share of this unpaid work since time immemorial, really. Um, and it, it is really important to enable men to take time out of the workforce so that they can take up this un, this unpaid caring role as well, um, because that obviously frees up women to go and pursue um, other professional careers as well as um, caring. But I was staggered at that $434 billion figure uh, because that is a massive contribution. And if we did alter the way that we calculated our GDP to include it rather than have it alongside, that would drastically affect how we perceive women and the work women do. You're absolutely right about that. Uh, without understanding, without recognising it, um, then we are really structuring in um, it counting for nothing. And we do disrespect women all the time, despite um, that labour and that huge contribution to the economy. Uh, so for, I'll just give a few examples of, of how this might affect uh, women. Uh, there was a, a furor over Christian Porter saying that young carers who were caring for um, their parents who had a mental illness or a disability uh, were costing um, their own welfare. They could be on welfare for 45 years and they'd cost taxpayers about 500000 Anyway, when it, it, it turned out, and, and one um, in particular carer on Q&A um, challenged him and said, look, you know, I get $8 a day. My mother was, you know, from the time I was a child developed um, a rare illness and became wheelchair bound and she and her sister and she was actually studying for her VCE uh, maintained the care of their mother and also were studying at school and there's obviously just tiny little pittance being paid for them paid to them but the way that is characterized um, is uh, significant because it's it's a very typical example of how females women doing this unpaid uh, labour is treated as if it's really nothing. So that there are all these um, criticisms almost um, saying, oh, well, they're not in full-time work. Why aren't they? And if you have just rendered all the care they're doing as nothing, then, of course, you think, well, why aren't they um, uh, employed for longer hours? And even the system of uh, calculation in GDP the ways ways in which mainstream economics characterise uh, characterises women's unpaid labour is to regard someone who's doing that unpaid labour, which might be keeping, say, a beloved mother who's in a wheelchair out of an institution, out of a nursing home, um, that that labour is really uh, nothing. It's, it's they're doing nothing. They're ac economically inactive. So the implications of only treating market work, paid work as something, you know, as, as something which is worth counting, um, has the most enormous 
implications, including for women who do a lot of this care by the time they reach uh, old age. Yes, because it's almost assumed that women will do this work. They will step up when needed to fill the gap that is there of caring for children or for elders. And then when that assumption is made, you know, most women or often women will do that. Um, You know, there are a lot of social norms and expectations around women doing that type of job. And then, you know, we have this language, as you say, that devalues and kind of views them as unproductive citizens, people who are out of the workforce who aren't contributing. I mean, it is really quite galling, to be honest, to to yes. see that happen. Yes, well, we have uh, more than a third of older women uh, who uh, have been looking after family uh, in permanent income poverty, according to one study. Uh, so that's an extraordinary thing that someone over 65 has been looking after people all their life as well as perhaps some paid work but it's not enough to uh, match the kind of um, superannuation that she might have had had she not had interruptions to um, her work, paid work. Uh, so that's how we're treating them. I mean, that's that's to me is, is a, makes it a, a real social justice issue and an urgent one that hasn't gone away from the time that Marilyn Waring um, was first writing. So in 2018, it is an, an urgent social justice issue. And it's not only a matter of men um, doing more of this unpaid labour. If we are so foolish as a society as to create a care penalty for those who do it, then how exactly are we ever going to implement gender equality and actually get men to do more? Because it's unlikely to happen while you are creating these um, care penalties and then all you have is the default social norm position where by default um, women are expected to, for example, retire early and care for an aged parent. Um, And then, you know, we are now changing the pension so that it's only available uh, when uh, you turn 67. So what happens if someone retires, as I know many of my friends have uh, in their uh, late 50s, uh, certainly by 60, in order to care uh, for aged parents. But then if they're single, then they don't necessarily have um, the economic resources uh, to even keep a, um, a house. They're so older women are one of the most rapidly rising uh, uh, groups of people who are becoming homeless. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a real issue of social justice and we need to... Um, really not only revisit this area but start thinking about the ways that we can combat it and I mention um, an international aid campaign from ActionAid which was uh, to uh, in in places like Kenya Uganda and Nepal where they actually had women fill out time use diaries and then they could see not only how much they're doing, but um, often since they weren't literate and their husband was or the husband saw just how much they were doing, but also given all their time was taken up with that unpaid labour, how much paid labour could they do? And it was obviously not very much. So it became much clearer as to how much um, government assistance you needed too, not just um, sharing uh, more of the labour, but also government assistance so that they could um, have more time to do uh, paid labour. So it was a matter of um, respect and recognition for the paid labour itself, um, but then redistributing that care 
and making sure that it was shared uh, more fairly. Yes, I mean, it makes this issue urgent, I think, um, reading this article and really understanding, as we have now, just what the real impacts are, particularly for women as they age and um, retire without that superannuation income that is assumed to be able to to, uh, look after and protect us in our older age. And certainly um, women who reach older ages, I know, say that they feel invisible um, in society, but the fact is we're making even their labour invisible um, by not appreciating it. So uh, I really want to thank you, Anne, for writing this piece and um, for highlighting all of these really important points today. Uh, Well, thank you, Amy, um, for a really um, terrific discussion. And I think it's actually that when people understand it, uh, they are much more likely to feel that we need to take action about it. And so I'm hoping that the article will galvanise discussion, but more than that, uh, action on behalf of uh, all those women who spend their lives doing this invaluable um, and valuable uh, unpaid labour. Mm, I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much. That was Anne Mann, who is the author of an article. It's the cover article for the monthly in the May edition. It's called Gross Domestic Hoax, How the Australian Economy Rests on Women's Unpaid Work. And that would uh, apply to every economy around the world and I highly recommend you search for Anne's article you can read it online Um, and uh, if you google making women's unpaid work count you will find it you are tuned to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with Amy Mullins this has been a podcast from 3 Triple R 102.7 FM in Melbourne truly independent community radio want to hear more check out our website at rrr.org.au